0: Thank you to those who led us in singing. We're involved in a series on these Sunday nights entitled, The One Another's, The One Another's of the New Testament. And we started last time with the first of those one another's, which was encourage one another or encouraging one another one another. And tonight, I want us to see the other end of the spectrum, and that is admonish one another. Admonish one another. I think it would be good for us to begin tonight by actually defining what the word admonish means. What does the biblical concept of admonishing one another mean? Well, If you wanted just to start with the definition of the word in English, it means to advise or to counsel, to urge, to reprove, to implore. Those would be some good definitions, at least as far as our English word admonish is concerned. And I think it holds true in so many ways from a biblical point of view, especially from a New Testament perspective. And that's seen in the Greek terms that are most often translated in our Bibles with words like, of course, primarily and chiefly, admonish, but also, and depending upon the particular English translation that you might use or if you have several of them in your library, uh, this particular uh, Greek term or family of Greek terms for admonish also could be translated instruct or warn correct, teach, or exhort. All of those translations are accurate and are very, very well attuned to the idea of what those Greek terms imply. And so admonish and warn and instruct and correct and teach and exhort are all very, very good ways to bring out the nuances of what it means to admonish one another. And the Greek terms, the key terms those family of words which are translated with those various English words, the noun form is nuthesia, nuthesia, and the verb nutheteo. That's where we get, at, at least even from biblical counseling cir- uh, circles, the word uh, neuthetic, transliterated into our English with the word neuthetic. And it really is a combination, I think, of of two particular Greek words. One is nous, which is the Greek word for the mind, and then the word tithemi, which means to place or to put into. And so really what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, this concept of admonish is to place into the mind of someone the Word of God so that they might be instructed, or they might be warned, or they might be corrected. It seems to be this particular word, and by the way, it's a word, nuthateo, that only the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament. It's not used by another biblical writer as far as our New Testaments are concerned. It's used by Paul, and when Paul uses it, he's particularly talking about, it appears in all of its various uh, contexts, is the idea that there is something amiss. Uh, There is something in the mind or the behavior of someone that needs to be corrected. And so that's why it tends to come across maybe a little bit in the negative slant where something is amiss that needs to be corrected. Uh, Some kind of sin in the heart or in the behavior of a person or both so that they might be warned or they might be corrected with regard uh, to whatever is going on in their life. You would place the Word of God in the mind of a fellow believer if you were admonishing them uh, to describe some kind of effect that you want to have on their will, uh, on their disposition. And it presupposes some kind of opposition uh, to the Lord, to His Word, uh, so that someone would be corrected. Uh, It's something that needs to be overcome. It's a process whereby you seek to put right what is wrong in somebody's thinking so that they might improve their behavior for the glory of God. Or if you're just simply studying your own Bible and you're wanting to be right yourself, something's amiss in your own thinking, and you're reading along in your New Testament, and you find out that there's something that you need correction on, it's God supernaturally placing His Word into your mind so that you are admonished, you're corrected, you're warned, you're instructed you're exhorted, you're taught uh, to correct that thinking so that you might uh, stand aright again with God, not in terms of your eternal destiny, but in terms of your behavior, in terms of what God wants you to do to live correctly the Christian life. And so that's, in essence, very, very briefly what the concept of admonishment is all about. Now, I want to do something that I think is, is fun. I want to give you a survey Ten passages, well, probably more than ten, but at least ten points, uh, that will show us ten ways in which we can admonish one another. We're going to sort of survey the Apostle Paul, and we're going to look at the passages in which he uses the concept of admonishment, and he is going to instruct us tonight, okay? Okay? The Word of God is going to help us, it's going to warn us, it's going to correct us tonight, and there are ten ways in which Paul wants to do so, and number one is this, number one, you have, as a Christian, the ability to admonish one another. You have, as a Christian, the ability to admonish one another. That's really the first place to start, isn't it? Because there are some people, and I've heard Christians even say this, well, look, I've got problems in my own life, I, I can't go around trying to, to correct somebody else, I have issues in my own heart that I need to deal with, so I'll just let somebody else admonish Uh, that person. I I certainly am not capable of doing this. I'm not a counselor, I've heard people say. uh, I I need to be discipled more than I disciple others. So I'll just let somebody else in the body of Christ who's more mature, uh, who's been uh, longer in Christ than I've been in Christ. And so I'll just let the quote-unquote professionals do it. I don't have a degree in counseling. I don't have a certificate. Um, I'm in a small group where I need others to come alongside me. Uh, I'll let the leader do that to us. All the reasons that people would give whereby they would say, I need to be the one to be admonished rather than my need to admonish others. And you know what the Word of God says? Not so not true. Look at Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And this is an amazing context. And we'll spend a little time as we go through these 10 by giving you the context so that you're going to see what's truly going on in their proper context so that you'll see how to admonish one another. In chapter 15, of course, Paul is talking about the gray areas of the Christian life. Things that aren't that aren't black or white, they're in the gray, they're in the middle. They're not specifically said to be in the law of God wrong necessarily, but they're not also particularly said to be in the law of God right either. And so it depends on the context of your relationship with someone. It depends on the situation. Uh, It depends on the freedom that you choose either to do something or not do something. And Paul talks about that in both Romans 14 and in Romans 15. And when he gets almost nearly to the end of chapter 15, here's what he says, kind of summing up his relationship with the Gentiles. These are Roman believers Paul didn't found the church in Rome, but he's wanting to instruct them, he's written them, he wants to come through and take up an offering f- from them so that he can give it to the poor church in Jerusalem, and he's coming almost nearly to the end of this grand epistle, and he says this in Romans 15, 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, now this is f- this is. Formally, to the whole church, right? This is what they're supposed to be reading in the congregation. Paul's letter, his letter is epistle to the Romans, and here's what he says in summary about them. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you are three things, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Of course, he doesn't mean that you are inherently full of goodness, because nobody's inherently full of goodness, right? But But he really is telling them, you have goodness by virtue of your relationship to Jesus Christ. You are good by virtue of being in the good one. The one who has died for your sins. The one who equips you. The one who strengthens you. And so he can say by the authority of the word of God, I'm convinced about you that you have what we might call is moral goodness. You have the opportunity Yea, even the capacity, if not the demonstration by the authority of God's Word and the responsibility to do good things. And I'm convinced about you, he says, that you are full of moral goodness. And then he says, secondly, filled with all knowledge. Filled with all knowledge. Now remember, these, these are Gentiles. These are largely Gentile believers that he's talking to. Some Jews, no doubt, but mostly Gentiles in Rome. And they're believers in Christ, and he tells them, you're full of moral goodness, and you are also filled with all knowledge. You are growing in your capacity to understand spiritual truth. And notice the 100% word he uses there. You are filled with how much knowledge? All knowledge. And I can just hear some of the believers in our fellowship, well, I'm not filled with all knowledge. I'm going to wait to admonish someone until I'm filled with all knowledge. Well guess what? That's the day just before you die, right? What he's really saying is, I'm convinced about you that you have an ever increasing moral goodness and you have an ever increasing capacity for the fullness of God's knowledge in your life. The 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 idea that you are being attuned to the ever-increasing knowledge of God as you learn more about Him. And you are being filled with all of that knowledge. And then he says, thirdly, I'm also convinced about you that you are able to instruct one another. Now you may have a translation that says you are able to admonish one another. That English Translation instruct in the ESV is our word. You are able to nuthateo. You are able to admonish one another. And notice the ability word. You are able. You have the ability. He says, I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. You could even make it more forceful. I myself... Paul putting himself in the emphatic position in that sentence of verse 14. I myself, I'm not just satisfied, I'm convinced. I'm fully persuaded about you, my brothers, implied brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, the moral capacity for virtue. You are filled with all levels of increasing knowledge so that you are also able to admonish one another. So right off the bat, we have to do away with the notion that says that admonishing one another is something left for the professionals. Not so. Every one of us have the ability, Paul says, to admonish one another. Number two, number two, you must make the commitment to admonish one another. You must make the commitment to admonish one another. And that stands to reason, doesn't it? If you have the ability to admonish one another, then you also have, have to make the commitment to admonish one another. And that's what Paul does. Turn over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul is there on the island of Miletus, gathering the elders of the church of Ephesus around him. And he's going to see them potentially for the last time. He's headed for Rome. He knows there's danger there. It's a very, very uh, uh, emotional scene. He knows that he will probably, no doubt, not see these brothers in the future. And We know that because in verse 37 and 38, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul. They kissed him, implied kissed him repeatedly. They were sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. This is a tremendous scene of great emotion, great pathos. And what does Paul say to them? Well, among many things that he says to them, notice what he says in verse 31. He says, therefore, speaking to these elders, and I believe we can, by way of secondary application, say for all of us, therefore, be alert remembering, and this is what Paul did to them, and he's challenging them to do to others, and those others are being challenged to do it with still others, remembering that for three years, the three years that he was with them intently, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now that, my friends, is a commitment. That's a tremendous commitment. For a period of three years, Years, night or day. If it was the nighttime and there was a need for some level of correction, admonishment, warning, instruction, he didn't cease from that responsibility. He made a grand commitment. Or if it was daytime and that daytime opportunity lent itself, demanded some level of admonishment, he was there. And how does the Bible say he admonished them? With tears with tears. He loved them. He loved them through the commitment of tears. That's that's a sincere brother, isn't it? That's someone who loves the ones around him. In fact, someone said, I think very well, that uh, one of the great virtues of the apostle Paul was that he smelled like sheep. He was always around them. He was always there with them. Wherever he went, he was there. He would go in the synagogues and he, was pre- he would preach Christ. He would go into the marketplace and he would preach Christ, according to the book of Acts. And when he had uh, elders that he was training, that he was teaching, that he was, that he was growing up, that he was affirming, that he was appointing, he says, for a period of three years, the three years that I was with you, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And I love what he says in verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Yes, I did admonish you. Yes, it was a warning. Yes, it was a correcting. And I now commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Admonishment always has the taste of grace. It's not because... I think I have some one upsmanship with you that I can admonish you, and you can't admonish me. It's not as though somebody always stands above and beyond the level of his own or her own needed admonishment. Not at all. It's just the occasion, just the opportunity. Everyone needs it. And you must make a commitment to admonish one another. And why? Because you have the ability to do so. Number three. Number three. You proclaim Christ by admonishing one another. Oh, this is rich. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. You proclaim Christ by admonishing one another. I mean, we all say we want to proclaim Christ. We all know as Christians we ought to proclaim Christ in all that we do. Well, Paul, true to form says we ought to proclaim Christ even by our admonishing of one another. Look at verse 28 of Colossians chapter 1. Him we proclaim warning everyone. That's our word. The word translated here in the ESV is warning. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom with all the wisdom of the Word of God so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Perfect in Christ. The full stature of maturity in Christ. That's the goal. This is, this is my life verse, by the way. This is the verse that I always write when I sign something for someone, or they're asking me, you know, what's your favorite verse? What's your life verse? Here it is, Colossians 1:28 and 29. It's, it's my duty, it's my privilege, it's my honor to proclaim Christ and you do that by warning everyone. N- no one uh, is outside the realm of admonishment. And by teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God gives to us at our disposal so that for the purpose that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is of admonishing everyone and the goal of teaching everyone with all the wisdom at our disposal is so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the goal. That's, that's, the, that's the end of all things. And if you and I are about to say, in this business of admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that our power is lacking, uh, that our strength is waning, he says, does Paul in verse 29, For this I toil, I labor, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Yes, when your resources have gone, when, when my resources are waning, we are to take up His energy, Paul says, that He powerfully works within me. There's so many so many power words that are listed there. He's saying, I toil. Now that's toiling with our strength. That's us doing it, struggling, agonizing. But we do it with all of God's energy that He powerfully and works, that's another power word, within me. We have the resources of Christ. We have the resources of God. We proclaim Christ and we do it by admonishing one another. That's how you proclaim Christ. That's one of the ways that Paul proclaimed Christ in his ministry. Number four. Number four. Staying here in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, you can actually admonish one another through corporate singing. You can actually admonish one another through corporate singing. Look at chapter 3 verse 16. This is so very familiar to us but it may not be as familiar that you see that the word for admonishment is given here. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, in what way? Richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now that's the same kind of wisdom that he gives over here in Colossians chapter 1. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And he says it again here. Here in the context, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing those same ideas, one another in all wisdom, all of the wisdom of the word of Christ, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God you can actually admonish one another by the songs that you sing. That song that we sang, He will hold me fast. Wouldn't that be a wonderfully appropriate song as it is being sung among the corporate body for someone who lacks assurance of their salvation? Someone who's struggling with their security in Christ? And when the congregation sings together, and there's this small-souled individual who's faint-hearted, then what are you supposed to do? According to last week's message, you, you encourage them. You come alongside them. And let's say that they are encouraged. And let's say that their soul is, is gaining strength, and they are growing in Christ, and they are beginning to have a smile on their face, and they're beginning to see Christ in greater avenues of trust and reliance. And yet that person is still struggling maybe with the security of their salvation. They don't really know if they truly possess eternal life. Uh, They've confessed Christ. They, They believe they know Christ. They want to respond to Christ. But they have this sense of maybe my sin is too great. Maybe there's going to be a sin that I commit even in the future for which Christ will not forgive me. And then I'm headed to perdition. And if they're truly redeemed as they hear the corporate body singing and as they see us as we are singing together in a unified front, he will hold me fast, then that person can say, perhaps I too can be held fast by Christ. Perhaps I too can be one of those who sings this song with gusto and verve and power and I can claim that same truth. You proclaim Christ when you admonish one another, and you can actually admonish one another by your singing together. That's why there's really a sense in which when a group of believers gather together for a corporate worship service, there ought to be some level of singing somehow. It's almost as though we can't help but sing, right? Singing lifts our hearts to praise. It lifts our sorrows to joy, It brings us from a place of dejection to the kind of praise that honors Him. Lord, I do believe that You can encourage my heart even as I come to church tonight. Please give me the opportunity to know the joy of the assurance of my salvation. Something like that. Just just anything, anything for which a believer might be struggling. And when they hear those songs, And when the wisdom of those songs are proclaiming the word of Christ, whether they're psalms or hymns or spiritual songs, you can redeem great thankfulness in your hearts to God. Number number five. Number five. Yes, it's also true that you will at times need to admonish the unruly within the body of Christ. Yes, of course. You will need at times to admonish the unruly within the body of Christ. First, Thessalonians chapter 5. That's, that's where we were last time. First Thessalonians chapter 5. These categories that Paul gives for how some people will be responding in the body of Christ at various times... There is listed that phrase that we talked about in great detail last time, encourage the faint-hearted, and then help the weak in the middle part of verse 14, and then the latter part of verse 14, be patient with them all. And what is the first phrase that is listed there? And we urge you, brothers, brothers and sisters, to admonish the idle or the unruly. Unruly, as I said last time, is that, that word, that concept that means someone is out of step. It's actually a military term, and it means someone who's out of cadence. They're not responding rightly in the body, body of Christ. It's not, it's not the faint-hearted person. It's not the weak person. It's not everyone else for whom we need to exert great patience. It's somebody who's actually unruly. They're out of step, and in this context because it's being translated as idle, it could be talking about someone who is lazy. Someone who's a busybody. Someone who's not doing their own work, but should be, and they need to be admonished. They need to be warned. They need to be corrected. And I'm not sure exactly, but maybe Paul is saying here in the first letter to the Thessalonians that there are a group of you in this church in Thessalonica for which you have stopped working, and you have become lazy, and you have become busybodies, and you, you go from house to house, and you are doing a lot of talk, but you're not doing a lot of work, and you are actually depending upon others to care for you and to feed you, and you're not doing work yourself. Why do I think this may be the case? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, now this admonishment of the unruly becomes a command for fellow believers to go to their brothers and sisters. And then he says, upping the ante here, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, That you keep away from any brother, you actually stand aloof from, stand away from any brother who is walking in idleness, that's our same concept, someone who's unruly, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Not only our instruction, but how we worked when we were among you. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was apparent that there were a group of people in the fellowship, we don't know how large, we don't know how many of them were acting like this, but they were out of step, they were out of cadence with the idea of working hard, of toiling, of laboring, not just for themselves, but for others, so that they wouldn't be a burden to anyone. And Paul uses himself and the apostolic band, those associates with him, as an example of those who were among you, showing you the way, showing you the example of what you are to do. He even says in verse 9, It was not because we, that is those who were with me and myself, it's not as though uh, we were not having that right to receive our remuneration because we're preaching the gospel and we're doing it full time. We have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not what? Let him not eat. You've got to work. You've got to work hard. He says in verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Walk is a step-by-step practice of living. He says we're... We're hearing these reports that some of you are busybodies. You're running from house to house. You're eating other people's labor, what, what they have toiled for. You're, you're doing a lot of talking, but you're not doing a lot of working. He says, we hear that some among you are walking in idleness, uh, in idleness not busy at work, but busybodies. And these are, these are strong verses Strong language that he's using here. Verse 12, now such persons, that of course in the plural means that there's certainly more than one, there could even be a group of these people, whether they're doing it together or whether they're doing it individually, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I mean, he actually gives the bulk of chapter 3 here in Second Thessalonians to this topic. Ooh, there's a lot of language here. There's a lot of emphasis here. He says, as for you, verse 13, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and certainly the idle person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. I've heard at times people say, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, you can't you can't do stuff like that to people that's going to discourage them well remember We're not talking about the faint-hearted who need to be encouraged. We're not talking about the weak who need to be helped. We're not talking about all men for which we must have some level of patience. But when somebody is so far out of step, so far out of cadence, that they're actually disrupting the fellowship, they're actually hurting other brothers and sisters by what they're doing, you have to take note of that person, Paul says, and you have to have nothing to do with him. So in one place, he actually says, verse 6, you should keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and here have nothing to do with him for the purpose that he would be punished. That it would bring him to a shamed condition. But then notice the note he gives in verse 15. Because we believe they are genuinely saved, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, there's our word again, but warn him as a brother. Which means you have to have dialogue. Which means this goes right along with what we've been saying about admonishment being some kind of verbal means of correction. And who is he writing this to? The entire church. And it's even being read publicly. Which means that all of you need to get involved. You say, how does that look like practically? Does that mean every single person is lining up, knocking on the door? No. It means at the appropriate time and with the investment and the wisdom of the leadership, you and I are being instructed to go to brothers and sisters who are disruptive of the fellowship, especially those who are being idle, they're being busybodies, and if the need arises, standing aloof from them. Now, I know that seems counterintuitive because all the things that we read in the New Testament about fellowship and about being together and about ministering to one another, and all of the one another's of the New Testament. But here, in this command to admonish one another, you actually have a side command that says, in addition to admonishing them, by your admonishment, if they don't mend their ways, if they don't confess their attitudes and their behavior, and if it's a chronic issue, and they are habitually walking in this idleness Perhaps individuals or even the church as a, whole, as a whole must stand aloof from them. In a sense, withholding fellowship. And I could imagine that what that looks like practically in the church then and possibly even in the church now is the idea that if there is somebody who comes into the fellowship, and by the way, in the New Testament, food and table fellowship was very prominent. If you were to do a study of the New Testament, and if you were to mark down every single time there was mention of some level of fellowship in the church, it usually occurred in the context of table fellowship. That is, people were sharing their food together. And that's why it's so natural for us to do it. And it could be conceived, could it not, that if someone was not working, they were idle, they were not doing what they were supposed to do to hold up their end of the toil of the work, so as to provide some of the table fellowship, and then they came and they plopped themselves down, and they began to eat the food that you had labored for, it might get under your skin, right? It might be that you're saying, but I know that you've had had a chronic, habitual, idea in your mind that you could be idle and not working while we're working and you then come to the table of fellowship and you are not pulling your load. And what do you do to that person? Well you don't encourage them. You you, you don't have all measure of patience and you never talk to them. You actually admonish them. You warn them, you instruct them, and you may actually have to take yourself and those around you in the fellowship and say, if you're not going to listen to this, then we're going to stand away from you in table fellowship. You may not come to to the table and have fellowship with us in the produce that the Lord has blessed us with, but not declaring them as yet an enemy, but certainly warning them as a brother or sister. You will at times need to admonish one another within the body of Christ because they're unruly. Number six. Number six. You should treat those Christians you admonish as spiritually beloved family members. You should treat them as spiritually beloved family members. We've, we've seen that even here in this very negative text of First and Second Thessalonians. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is is ever and always the patient yet admonishing Apostle Paul. The Corinthians, of course, were a tremendous challenge to be around, to be frank. I mean, if you look at 1 Corinthians and if you read that book in one sitting, If you were just to read about all of the things that Paul was admonishing them regarding, it would take your breath away. I mean, it's amazing. It's all the things from division in chapter one, their factiousness in chapters two and three, even in chapter four, as we'll look, they have some issues. In chapter five, gross immorality. In chapter six, they're taking each other to court and not resolving things within the fellowship. In chapter 7, wives and husbands are depriving one another in the bedroom. Chapter 8, they're even eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, or they're getting on to those who are doing so, and they're having problems and issues with each other in that realm. Chapter 9, there are financial issues that are being talked about. Chapter 10, they've got issues that lead into the idea of false ways to involve themselves in communion. I mean, it just goes on and on. He has to tell them in chapter 12 because they're either uh, showing all of these uh, showy gifts and they're excluding those who don't have the sort of upfront gifts, and he has to chide them and correct them because of that. Chapter 13, he has to tell them about love and what they're not doing. Chapter 14, the misuse of the spiritual gifts of prophecy. I mean, there's there's nary a chapter in 1 Corinthians that Paul isn't getting on to them about something. And of course... Corinth wasn't the only place. We've just seen that the Thessalonians had some issues. And you would think that the Apostle Paul, being this one who is constantly trying to to proclaim Christ so that they could be be presented mature, fully conformed to Christ's image, that he would just get so frustrated with them. And in some ways that may be true, but he was also ever the loving, gracious God merciful Paul, probably because he realized out of that which he himself had been redeemed and his own attitudes, that he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, I do not write these things. Everything, certainly in the context of what chapter 4 is talking about but probably all from chapters 1, 2, 3 and 4 I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you and how does he do that how does he liken them but to admonish you as my beloved children for though you have countless guides in Christ those can, who can lead you into greater conformity to Christ's likeness, you have a lot of those, you do not have many fathers. I'm your spiritual father in the faith. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. He says, look, I've been hard on you. I've been really hard on you. Because you've needed it because you've needed to be corrected. But I want you to know this. Even though I've been hard on you, I do it because you're my beloved spiritual children. And you know, that seems to me to give the note that even in our admonishing, we have to remember ourselves, that we also are spiritual children, that we're also growing in Christ. That whoever the admonisher is, we need to be ever mindful of the person we're admonishing. Because we ourselves are just around the corner from being admonished ourselves. And I think Paul is including himself here. Look, I, I became a child in Christ. I became a family member too. I know what it means to be admonished. I know what it means to be spanked. And I know that I've been spanking you. But I'm doing so because I want you to know you are my beloved children. We've always got to keep that in mind. Always and ever. Doesn't he say to the Galatians that I am laboring so diligently that he thinks of the metaphor of a woman in labor and he says, I am in labor until Christ is fully formed in you. It's a, it's a nine-month, spiritually speaking, birthing process until you're complete in Christ. And there are times when those, those pains of coming to you time and time again and admonishing you is for the sake not of slapping you silly with the truth, but it's so that I might spank you spiritually because I love you. You're my spiritual children. How many of you are parents already? Parents, you and I know that that little bundle of joy needs great admonishment, right? And it seems as though the older they get, the more admonishment they need. But as they are in need of progressive admonishment, we forever and always remind ourselves, that's my kid. That's my child. That's my son. That's... That's my daughter. And I don't think Paul is is using some of this this metaphor of of spiritual father and spiritual children uh, in a vacuum. I think he knows our own sympathies. I think he knows our own emotions. And he's saying, just like you were sitting your children down and you were correcting them and warning them and spanking them, so you must do so spiritually and that's what I'm doing to you. I know I'm hard on you, but I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Number seven, you parent your own children by lovingly admonishing them. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4? In this household list of obligations, commands, He says in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline, that word there is paideia. Paideia, discipline. Um, Sometimes translated, uh, nurture. You're nurturing them. You're teaching them, paideia. That's the the word with which we get the idea of a teacher who is instructing. And then he says, and instruction in the Lord. That's our word for admonishment. Instruction. Nuthesia. This is the, the warning, the correcting, the teaching, the exhorting that we do with our physical children. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians 4 that he's doing it spiritually to those who were birthed in Christ through his gospel ministry. Now we're talking about doing it to your own children. And do you know that it is sometimes so difficult because of your love for them, because of your desire for them to want to like you and to honor you and respect you and follow you, that sometimes we even, in a weird, twisted way, shrink back from admonishing them because we don't want them to think in negative terms about us. And so when they need that spanking, when they need that instruction, when they need that admonishment, we shrink back from it because we want them to like us. We want them to accept us. And that's a satanic lie, isn't it? Because the book of Proverbs is chock full of admonishment about disciplining your children, about instructing them, about giving them the rod, the rod for the the back of that child, for their bottom so that they would understand that this behavior is unacceptable. And the very reason that I'm giving you the rod is because I love you, regardless of whether in the moment you like me or not. I want to give you a vivid illustration of this. Turn in in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. This is a very, very sad but vivid portrayal of a father who did not do this with his children. 1 Samuel chapter 1. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's this tender account of, of Hannah who wanted desperately to have a child and she was praying to the Lord and there was a time that she was praying so fervently according to 1 Samuel chapter 1 beginning in verse 12 that she was, she was so moved in her heart that she was actually speaking in her heart and, and her lips were moving but you couldn't hear anything. And the priest at the time, Eli, took her to be a drunken woman And she says, no, Lord, I'm not a a drunkard. I'm troubled in my spirit, according to verse 15. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord because I want to have a child. And of course, who was that child that was ultimately born to her? Samuel. And that's the vivid picture in chapter 1. That's that tender picture of Hannah crying out to the Lord so that she could be given this son that she would later, after he was weaned, give right back to the Lord, right? And you know, I think there's a strong contrast that's about to happen. Look at chapter 2. She prays this marvelous prayer going all the way down to verse 10 of chapter 2. Uh, the, the, the remarkable connection and contrast between what's going on in chapter 1 is vividly contrasted with that which is going on at the end of chapter 2, and that's Eli's worthless sons. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now just contrast that with Hannah's prayer, and then her son Samuel, and giving him up to the Lord. These two sons of Eli, who was the priest in Israel, and it says they didn't know the Lord. And the custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. In other words, you want to talk about you know giving of your labor and receiving back something for your priestly labor they were to be they they were to be given something because they were the priest they were sacrificing on behalf of the people so give meat for the priest to roast for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw verse 16 and if the man said to him let them burn the fat first and then let uh, then take as much as you wish he would say no but you must give it now and if not i will take it by force this is not good Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. They were corrupt, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This is uh, Hophni and Phineas, And this is, this is not a good thing. Verse 20, then Eli, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife Hannah, And say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they returned to their home. And indeed the Lord visited Hannah. See the comparison and contrast here? And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. I mean, the Lord was blessing her because of how she was treating her her kids, how she was living a godly life, and how this young man Samuel had been given to the Lord by her, just given up completely when the time was right. And then notice the contrast again, verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So add to their previous sin now this immorality of sin. And in a last ditch effort and that which he hadn't done previously, he said to them, verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will medita- uh, mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And the Lord rejects Eli's entire household, beginning in verse 27. And He holds Eli accountable to this. He's the the head of the house. Not just the head of Israel, the head of the house. He says in the latter part of verse 28, I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then did you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me, By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Apparently, Eli himself was involved in such things. This is bad. This is really bad. And so the Lord declared. I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall, buy, shall die by the sword of men and this that shall come upon your two sons Hophni and Phineas, shall be the sign to you both of them shall die on the same day and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in their house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, "Please put in one of the priests, please put me in one of the priests' places that I may eat a morsel of bread." And then as you know, the Lord calls. Samuel and he's called and then all the way over in chapter 4 verse 12 Eli meets his his death he hears that his sons have indeed been killed on the same day and he's 98 years old according to verse 15 and his eyes were set so that he could not see and the man said to Eli I am he who has come from the battle I fled from the battle today And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And and as soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. And soon after, according to verse 21, a child was named from Phinehas' line, Ichabod. The glory has departed. And why had the glory departed? In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that account that I read to you about Eli, uh, Eli, it says that he failed to admonish his sons. He failed to admonish them. Oh, you say, well, he did it at the end. Yeah, but well, that was way too late. He failed to admonish him. See, that's why you have to admonish your children. They'll, they'll love you for it, even if, even if not in the moment. They'll ultimately love you for it. And you know, I believe that when you are given the responsibility to admonish your children, it's the training ground for how you can do it in the church. Because you love them. You care about them. You, you want them to do well, just like you want those spiritually in the church to do well. It's a great training ground. Number eight, you can learn to avoid admonishment by seeing bad examples. You can avoid being admonished by seeing bad examples. This is also very, very vivid Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This should be a warning to all of us about avoiding admonishment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, Paul says to the Corinthians, that their fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. I mean, this is euphoria. This is wonderful. This is great. This is fantastic. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, with most of the Israelites there in the wilderness, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why? Why were they overthrown in the wilderness? Verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. you want to avoid, avoid being admonished? Look at this list. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, We must, must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Here's a serious sin. Number 10, verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the angel of death, the destroyer, for grumbling. I mean, that's a, that's a hideous list. Idolaters, indulgent sexually, Testing or trying the Lord, tempting the Lord, grumbling. And then verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. That's the second time he said that. But they were written down. This is the Old Testament record. They were written down for our what? Instruction. Instruction. For our admonishment. I mean, you read some of those Old Testament accounts. I wish we had time to read those. I mean, you read such a vivid portrayal of rebellion that it shakes you to your core. And it makes you want to say something like this, I don't ever want to be in their shoes. I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to participate with something like that. Well, that's why You say that because these are examples and they were written down for our instruction. No wonder he says in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. These are powerful examples. I call them powerful negative examples. I mean, yes, we need powerful positive examples. We need to see a lot of people who are virtuous and they're doing what's right and they are models and examples for us, but we also need negative examples. Yes, we need them because powerfully they tell us by their bad examples what we are to stay away from. We can avoid being admonished by seeing some of these bad examples. Number nine you may be called upon to admonish and ultimately reject the factious. You may be called upon as the church to reject ultimately the factious. That's what Titus chapter 3 says. Paul using the word there. And he, and he uses in verse 10 this this severe, serious warning, as for a person who stirs up division. That's our word for being factious. It's actually the Greek word hieretikos. And it could also mean, and probably does, some level of doctrinal drift, doctrinal error, doctrinal division, doctrinal factiousness. And he says, after warning him once and then twice... Having Have nothing more to do with him, knowing that a person, such a person, is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You're to warn him. That's our word for admonishment. Warn him. I'll never forget in a previous church context, a person who was going along in a certain group that I had oversight of, and he was trying to teach people that baptism was required for Regeneration. But if you were baptized and as you were taken down in the water, that very water and that very experience was that which regenerated you so that you could become a Christian. And he was purveying that teaching in, in the fellowship. And we had to sit down with him and warn him. And he was stirring up division and he was being factious. And we had to warn him. And we warned him even more than once, even more than twice. And the Bible says, after you admonish him, have nothing to do with him. He's a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Sometimes you may be called upon to admonish and ultimately reject the factious person. That's the seriousness of the stream of admonishment. Admonishment could come from the lightest kind of uh, instruction and warning and correction and it could become actually on the sweep of that admonishment and what we're called upon to do in the church to that which is the most onerous the most definite the most severe and number 10 you ought to appreciate those in spiritual leadership who admonish you in the lord you ought to appreciate those who admonish you your spiritual leaders in the lord first thessalonians chapter 5 we were right there in verse 14 and in a lead-in to verse 14 about admonishing the idle or the unruly. He says in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 5, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Yes, Even those who admonish you, who are your spiritual leaders, you are to appreciate, to respect those who are laboring among you, over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. And we're called upon, according to verse 13, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, it's not easy to respect and esteem and love and appreciate those who are correcting you. But that's what the Bible teaches this is the sweep, my friends. This is, this is the very sweep of what Paul has said. I think that may actually be all of the times that Paul has mentioned. The concept of admonishing. And you have it here in this one message. And so we have a package of truth that tells us what we are to do. And God will bless us when we do it, right? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for blessing us. This is certainly a different message than encourage one another. And even though it's a hard message, it's a good one because we are to be involved just as much as we encourage the faint-hearted to admonish the unruly. And as we do, and as we live this hard-edged correction at points, we will be doing it in love and we will be giving the best gift we could to correct somebody's thinking by placing the Word of God into their minds so that their behavior would change. What a gift. May you use it in this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.